Angus Young, how you doing? Good, Becca. The offspring. How's it going, Becca? Dave Grohl, how you going, mate? Good, man. Pete, it's been a long time coming. Oh, Becca, hasn't it indeed? We go inside the dressing room, speak to the biggest names in music. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. And crack open their esky. This is exactly how I imagined you, by the way, sitting opposite me with a vodka and orange. You're a discerning chap. This is The Rider. Yeah, this is Becca. Welcome back to The Rider. Part two of our chat with Michael Chug. Chuggy is an absolute legend, a great bloke, and he's got a million stories. And if you missed part one, make sure you go back and catch up because he opens up about so many experiences with uh, his good mate, Michael Godinski. Uh, the signing of ACDC, going on the road with his incredible young Aussie band right around the world. You can go back now and catch up on all platforms. But right now, part two of our chat with Michael Chug. Still to come, we'll talk about Fleetwood Mac, that famous tour with Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, and also how did he bring back the famous Frank Sinatra to the Australian shores. All that to come in the next 30 minutes, but right now, this is uh, a very honest and emotional part of the interview with Michael Chug. He lost his great mate, Michael Gadinsky, uh, an icon of the Australian music industry. Uh, they had had partnerships over the years. They had, in a way, broken up and then were preparing to come back together as a joint venture. Let's pick it up with Michael Chug talking about his future with Michael Gadinsky. Gadinsky and I, we'd always been friends and rivals and friends, and we'd talk over the years. But in 2018, we started talking about getting back together, you know, leaving a legacy for our families and the industry. And so we did a JV between Frontier and Chug Entertainment. Unfortunately, um, COVID hit and Michael died, but we're still, the JV still going on. We've got some exciting things coming up, hopefully around the end of 222. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so we got back together and I'm very happy that we did that. And uh, I'm totally into the whole thing now with Matt Gadinsky and it's an incredible thing that we've done. And, you know, I'm just sad, sorry that he can't be here with us. What was the last... Um conversation you guys had together because i know he was in sydney for the the oils gig i spoke to him eight hours before he died on the monday night he was giving me shit about something we talked for about 20 minutes and then the next morning i woke up and i had about eight messages on my phone from frank stavala in melbourne and i rang him and he told me total shock total total shock i knew all about the oils He'd been up for the oils and all that. And I was out of town. Uh, I was in Brisbane uh, with one of the band, one of our bands. Could have been Lime Cordial, actually. Anyway, very sad. And it was such a shock. Uh, I didn't expect he'd go before me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, like, I still miss him all the time. And I was writing to Dion, who runs Mushroom Frontier, and I said, God, I'm just watching the ashes. If Michael was still alive, he'd be dancing around his fucking lounge room right now because he was such a cricket addict. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, you know, you think about him all the time. Comes up yeah. all the time. Yeah, I'm sure there's things where you just you go for the phone and you, and you forget, you know, and uh, you both have had a great commitment to Australian music and, and nurturing those small bands and, and giving them that just a yeah, leg I remember, I remember spending a lot of time in America with him when he was, he, that Joe, yeah, Joe came up, 
going the Falcons over there. Uh, mm. I was over there when the sports were doing stuff. I mean, um, Steve White and I were the first people to ever play split ends at the Coogee Hotel in Sydney. <laughs> there was 12 people there throwing cans at him. <laughs> he went on and signed them. And, uh, I mean, that band... Ian Copeland, the late Ian Copeland, who was the brother of Stuart Copeland and ran FBI, which Frontier Booking International, which is where we got the name Frontier. He um, he um, was a close friend of mine. We hung out at conferences and everything. He said to me not once but many times that Split Ends were about to be one of the biggest bands in the world when they broke up. And, of course, you saw where Crowded House went after that. But yeah. I remember how much Michael put into Split Ends. And, you know, I was there when Skyhooks exploded and, you know, basically kept the whole mushroom thing going. Michael and I had similar philosophies in that, you know, if you believed in something and you, you you would go to the ends of the earth to make it work. You'd pour every cent you had into it, uh, knowing that if it succeeded, you, the money would you'd get the money back. But you know there was a lot of a lot of acts went very very close yes. to yeah. making that international barrier, which is you know what we're all about. I mean, when my band Shepherd uh, had massive hit with Geronimo around the world, Gudinski was the first one to congratulate me, knowing that he'd be pretty pissed off and jealous about it too, you know. <laughs> but that was how we were, you know, and that's still how it is. I mean, there's one or two managers who I won't mention names of, but they used to go around the world and people would ask them about other Australian bands and they'd say, oh, they're shit, don't even bother with them. You know, I'd go into heads of Sony offices and I'd hear these stories and people would say to me, what do you think of so-and-so? And, -so? and I, sometimes I'd never heard of the band, but I'd go, oh, they're great. They're just so hot, you know, and build up every moment, every opportunity you got, you build up Australian music. It didn't matter if it was somebody else's band or not. I mean, we suffered up until the early 2000s, I suppose, with this attitude of, where so many bands, like you'd have a big hit like Daddy Called It or one of those, and you're only ever as big as that hit. And your career never kept going. Where in America, you had one or two hits in America, you're still making a big living today. And here in this country, you were only as big as your last hit. So you, there were regularly, you know, and there were competitions, you know, Sherbet or... Skyhook's the biggest, or his daddy calling Billy Thorpe the biggest, and that was very detrimental to our music, and it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, Christ. Yeah, streaming's changed the the whole landscape. But I know, I know, um, Michael, um, you know, was frustrated with Cold Chisel and Jimmy. You know, like they were, yeah, yeah, destined for massive things over there, and it just didn't work out. And uh, that's right. And I was there. I was with Jimmy, and he, and he was staying in. Um, Oh, fuck, what's the name of the huge American uh, record legend? Um, he was saying... Was Jimmy Iovine, was it? or uh, No, no, huh? bigger than that. One of the yeah. real legends. I forget his name. Yeah. It'll come to me. Anyway, I was there when Jimmy was basically making the soul album. 
and Michael, you know, everything was resting on that. I mean, Jimmy's actually bigger overseas now than he's ever been. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about um, the Fleetwood Mac tour. There's a couple of key tours, you know, that 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 you put on that you, you tell great stories about, and, and the the Fleetwood Mac Rumors tour just had so much to unpack. Yeah, Rock Arena was this very special situation where you know Fleetwood Mac um, and Danny, uh we put Santana on, and Eddie Money, who'd had a monstrous hit at the time. We had the Little River Band and Kevin Bodice Express. And it was quite incredible tour, amazing tour. And Sydney Showgrounds was quite a trip. We'd had to import Gatorade in from America <laughs> uh, for Fleetwood Mac, cases yeah. of it. And we also needed to get Heineken beer, which was very rare. It was back then. You couldn't get it. So we got all the Heineken and we got the Gatorade. And I also had to, for the rest of the tour, I had to smuggle limes across the border because you couldn't get them in every state. Anyway, we're at Sydney Showground. And as I do at the the beginning or before the show started, I would walk around and check everything. And I walked into Fleetwood Max dressing room and there were four dozen bottles of Heineken without any bottle tops. And I've gone fucking nuclear. I've started screaming, which I used to do a lot in those days. And their tour director, John Courage, is another story. He was from the, he was the second son of the Courage beer family. And he was the one who either joined the army or fucking got moved to India. But he became a, a roadie and ended up being Fleetwood Max manager in a lot of ways anyway he said to me come with me we walk up on the stage and there's two little tents either side of the stage and in the tents is a card table and on the card table uh one bottle top on top of another one and he shows me what's in the bottle top which i'll leave to your imagination (laughs) and um I said, you fucking asshole, this Heineken cost me $5 a fucking bottle. We could have bought a grosser fucking bottle tops for fucking two bucks. <laughs> I just love how they had to have it in a certain bottle top. We won't get too deep into that. <laughs> no. I don't know whether the statue, oh, I suppose the statue's in limitation. Away. <laughs> um, the other thing about it was they wanted a medieval tent backstage. And in that tent was a 30-foot-long medieval table with king and queen chairs at each end. And, you know, on the table were whole roast pigs, whole roast lambs, platters of salmon, smoked salmon, all, you know, all just a banquet, incredible banquet. And there were bottles of Dom Perignon and bottles of Pims, which I'd never heard of, with an English drink, uh, and just the best the best French whites and reds and everything. In the, it cost a fortune to do that. And, you know, they never went in there. All three fucking shows, they never went in there. So one of the roadies, a lighting guy called Peter Rooney, and I got some of the Jans lighting cases and got them converted into bottle racks, and at the end of the shows, we'd take all the Dom Perignon and all the French wines and we were carrying 
about four road cases of wine. I think I drank, drank the first, last bottle of Dom in about 2001. <laughs> um, so, so we did well. And then all the roadies breaking down the stage, loading the trucks, they had the best after load out uh, dinner you've ever had in your life. Oh, can you imagine? So that was the, the, the decadence of backstage at, at Fleetwood Mac. And uh... oh, it was unbelievable. And yeah, you know, it, I had been in Perth with Rory Gallagher and I couldn't get back in time for the site inspection and the placement of the stage at Calder Raceway. So anyway, we're letting all the crowd in and they're coming in and we suddenly realised the fence was about 30 yards too far too far forward and it was so fucking packed. And then, of course, you cop that four seasons in one day in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the roadies are loading out and every piece of paper, every piece of flotsam was blown up against the stage security fences by a 60, 80-kilometre wind at one o'clock in the morning. And then driving home, there's like 20,000 people walking home from Calder Raceway. Oh, shit, the bad vibes we copped in the media for the next couple of weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your book came out in 2010, Hey, You in a Black T-Shirt, and that came from the Guns N' Roses Use the Illusion Tour, which uh, the greatest uh, tour that Australia ever saw. And I can't imagine the amount of prep to make that all happen and, and not just to get Guns N' Roses, but you had Guns N' Roses having a, a week off between shows. There was Sydney and Melbourne. Tell us about that day in Sydney. Well, that was an incredible day. I mean, we, we still hold the record for the biggest one-day show ever. Um. 77,000 people. We had a, I had a hospital backstage with my doctor, Dr. Chung and nurses. And we had uh, uh, the chief inspector of the Blacktown Police. Um, him and I uh, formed a pretty good relationship. We, we actually did a few days before the show, we did um, uh, 7.30 or the Tonight Show, if it was called then, with Liz Hayes. Because Ken, the chief inspector, had long silver hair, beautiful silver mane. So she called us silver tongue and silver hair, silver top and silver tongue. Um, so, you know, I was lucky. We'd done a tour with Guns N' Roses in arenas earlier. And, actually, you know, despite everybody saying Axel hated promoters, Axel and I actually got on really well. And we spent many hours on that arena tour hanging out late at night just talking and being you know, pretty good mates. So I wasn't really worried about all the death and destruction shit that the newspapers were promoting. We knew, you know, we were pretty together. And we worked for months on this show. I mean, we had, we had meetings out at Eastern Creek with the council, the police, the health and safety. I mean, the traffic, you name it. A lot of work went into that show in Sydney. Axel had arrived, I think it was in James Packer's helicopter, which was sitting out the back. And um, we were all on target and um, I went down. I get a call. Chief Inspector wants to see you now. So I go down to the police compound and he says, Chuggy, I don't give a fuck what you do. 
He said, you can tell them to stamp on. He said, I don't care what you fucking do. Put those fucking fires out. The idiot groundsman had cut the grass four days before. So there were piles of dead grass everywhere. Then you've got all the plastic and styrofoam that comes with all the, you know, in those days with your beers and your... And so the kids have started all these fires. And um, we've been... Skid Row's been off about half an hour. We're waiting for Guns N' Roses, who we expect to be, will be late on stage. So I walk out on stage. I walked up to the microphone. And unbeknownst to me, Nick Bennett, Triple M DJ, was in the audience because Trevor Smith was broadcasting live from there. So they'd slip Nick into the audience with a microphone. And I didn't know. So I walked out on stage. And evidently Nick's gone, here he comes, here he comes. Axel's walking on. So it wasn't, it was me. I walked up to the microphone <laughs> and I said, Sydney, I don't give a fuck what you do. You can piss on them, you can roll on them, or you can stamp on them, but put those fucking fires out now. We're Axel and I are getting in that helicopter over there and we're fucking off back to Sydney and you can all walk home. Well, the fires went out immediately. I mean, the reason it had been motivated was we had 40 people in the fucking hospital with asphyxiation. No. So anyway, we got through that. We went to Melbourne, which was another four seasons in one day, and we <laughs> copped a lot of shit over Second time at quarter raceway, never again. Anyway, I'm in Perth on a tour about two and a half months later, and I knew this... Um, guy his name was john he was 30 40 years old he uh, had a disability but i always a big fan of music i always said hello and he came running over the back of the perth car entertainment center car park and he yelled out mr chug mr chug I went, hi john how are you? he said you were terrific at guns and roses I said, oh, you came over and you didn't come and visit me? He went, no, 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 I heard you on the radio. <laughs> I've, I've rung Charlie Fox at Triple M and gone, you fucking prick. And he, before I could say another word, he said, we were wondering how long it would take you to find out. That rave went live across Triple M Australia. <laughs> and not even just Sydney, right around the country. God. Yeah, everywhere. Anyway, I found out because of my mate in Perth, because I'm nice <laughs> to people and people tell me shit. Yeah, um, the black T-shirt thing came because um, we were Andrew Tatray from Aces Security who ran our sites and did all that for many, many years. Um, he was at the front gates and in, in Eastern Creek you had the hill. And then the gates were over the other side of the hill. You couldn't see. And he gets on, and I'm on stage at the microphone. He said, get ready. Okay, gates are open. Here they come. And then all of a sudden, there's about 10,000 kids on the top of the hill, like an Indian tribe from an old movie, right? Yeah. And they've all started running. And I've gone, hey, you in the fucking black T-shirt, stop running now. And they've all stopped, looked at each other. 
laughed and walked down the hill. That's where the title of the book came from. And everyone knows that quote. I, I interviewed Matt Sorum, the drummer of Guns N' Roses, and he brings up that quote as well. A few years later, when Sting was doing his solo trip, they recorded some of my introductions. And I, one night I got a call from a friend in Spain, Barcelona, and he said, are you here? I went, what are you fucking talking about? He said, I just heard you on the microphone introducing Sting. They took took my fucking intro around the world. Yeah. That is amazing. There's one more tour I want to ask you about because it feels like I just don't know how you did it. Um, Frank Sinatra was in Australia in 74 and and said, never again, I'm out, I'm never coming back. And you somehow got him back. Well, it's a long story. Tony Cochran, who now is the president of the Suns and also made the supercar thing the biggest Mm. thing since life spread. Tony was working for a guy at Sanctuary Cove called Al Gore. And they bought Sinatra and Whitney Houston out to open Sanctuary Cove. And I went up there, as did Paul Nady, as did Gary Van Ingman, as did everybody. And um, it was horrible. You were eaten to death by mosquitoes and the fucking chairs were sinking in the mud. It was just horrible. Yeah. Anyway, I went backstage. I knew Tony because Tony used to be high watt lighting at the Adelaide Memorial Drive in orange jumpsuits, putting in the lights and the follow spots. I went back and I saw Tony and I told him very effusively that it was fantastic what he'd done and what a fantastic thing. So about eight months later, he rings me and he goes, I've got a chance of bringing the main event. Sinatra, Sammy Davis and Dean Martin to Australia. Would you guys like to be involved? So I immediately went to Gadinsky and said, we've got to do this. So we did. And then Dean Martin was very ill and Liza Minnelli um, replaced him. It was amazing, amazing tour. It was just sensational. And to be, you know, I grew up when I was two or three years old, uh, I've listened to my father's 33s and obviously Frank Sinatra was a big impression on my very young age, you know. Yeah. So yeah. for me, I flew my parents over from Tasmania. I think it's the first time my father actually stopped telling me to get a haircut and said I actually <laughs> was, I was doing a good thing. Anyway, yeah, it was he was grumpy old bastard, but it was a sensational tour. Was that the moment where you you realize your dad was proud of you that was yeah. that was the moment that was the moment yeah yeah that was the moment but i love that um sammy davis jr kind of stole the show didn't he he was on the front page of the the, the paper in sydney and that didn't go down too well with frank either no i'll tell you the story so i'm out and about we'd actually been michael and i'd been out to dinner with elliot wiseman who was frank's manager we'd been at darcy's in paddington so i got back to the hotel by the time i got back to the hotel it was two o'clock in the morning. And I went to sit with the security guys, Tony Edwards, a, ex, a copper where you used to, incredible guy. And I was sitting with them when the papers arrived. And of course we get a paper and here's Sammy photo on the front page. Well, about 15 minutes later, I hear this bang, bang, bang. Get up, Jilly, get up, Jilly. Jilly's Frank's bodyguard, been with him for, what, 40 years? Jilly was in bed 
with a hooker that me and the tour manager had set up for it with big bazookas was his <laughs> So he's in bed with the girl and um, Frank's banging on his door. Get up, get up. We're fucking going home. And he's waking everybody up. So I've had to walk around and I've gone, Mr. Sinatra, excuse me, Mr. Sinatra. Look, I understand that you're upset. I'm never going to sing with that little again. Okay, look, I know you're upset, but there's there's no flights, sir. You won't be able to get out of here till mid-morning tomorrow. And we still had a show or two to do. Um, I said, I think you should go back to bed. And he swore at me and stuff, and he wandered off back to bed. (laughs) But if I hadn't have been there, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Your job yeah. is just putting out fires, isn't it? That's all you're doing well, there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, as well as making sure the artists are looked after, the other motto we had was to be seen and not heard. So yeah. you're always there, you know. And I've had, you know, I remember back in the 70s when we were doing Bowie um, with Dainty, uh, we were at, oh, I think, was it called the White Elephant, this trendy club in Perth, which had the best clubs in Australia back in those days. And it was a press conference for Bowie and I was standing side of the street just making notes about shit I kept remembering. I always used to write everything down. David walked over and said, hi, how are you? Because he knew I was involved. I said, I'm great, Mr. Bowie. Thank you. Yeah. He said, what are you doing? You're writing stuff down. I said, I'm writing down things, Mr. Bowie, to make the tour work even better for you. And he smiled and off he went. But that was what you did. You were seen Mm. and not heard. I mean, a few times in the front of your days, uh, Michael, Philip Jacobson and I staged some pretty big arguments in the corridors of the backstage just to calm down a few assholes who, you know, subtly changed their attitude when they heard us carrying on like wild men. <laughs> well, before you uh, go, I want to yeah. uh, ask you, because the, the podcast is called The Rider. Um, back in the day, what did you actually have in your rider when you were buzzing around backstage? I must have had some demand, like I want a bottle of whiskey or whatever it was. You know, there were various periods where, you know, I was Jack Daniels, two bottles a day, man, for a while. I was a vodka, you know, man for, you know, um, John Courage taught me how to drink vodka and Coke in milkshake cartons. That was pretty awful. (laughs) Um, And, you know, uh, I graduated. Obviously, you can't stay alive if you keep drinking all that shit. And um, so, you know, these days it's a bottle of good Pinot Noir and if you can get it, preferably from Oregon. Good luck getting a bottle of that in uh, Phuket. Oh, you're doing all right. <laughs> doing all right? <laughs> and Nero, Nero Diablo from Sicily where I spent six weeks a few years ago. That's really good. And so that's my rider. It's not mm. crazy. I try not to drink too much. No, no, nah, nah, you're looking after yourself. And you look really like well, mate. Stay alive. Yeah, thank well, mate, you. It is great spending some time with you and, um, yeah. you know, you've, you've been on my wish list for a while and, and we always have a good chat. Got a chug music meeting, a Zoom meeting in about 15 minutes. So you've done well to pull it up. <laughs> it's good stuff, we mate. We well, talk thanks. for hours, as you know. Well, 
we definitely could. And uh, look, there's there's a lot more I could ask as well, mate. But um, but look, thanks for the time right, again, man. and stay safe, and I'll see you soon. All right, Chris, love you. Right. I ain't shaking. See you, man. Bye. How good is he, Michael Chug, an icon of the Australian music industry, and he can really tell a story. If you missed that Fleetwood Mac chat, well, uh, you can go back now and catch up on all platforms. Michael Chug on the Rider with Becco. Next week on the podcast, the drummer of Midnight Oil. They've released their final album. They're on their final Australian tour. And with an election coming up, it kind of feels like the timing is right for Midnight Oil to make an impact. Next week on the podcast, Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil. We'll catch you then. It's The Rider with Becco.